Okay. Um, well, we'll put you to the test. We'll put you to the test and see if the uh, if the praise was all uh, deserved. Put me to the test because okay. you have built up people's expectations. <laughs> now I feel that I must be an exceptional teacher. Welcome to Voices from the Middle. I'm your host, Michael Friedman, and this is a podcast where we talk about career management, organizational life, and all things related to leadership. And I'm very pleased today to be talking to a colleague and a, a teacher of mine, Dr. Theo Dawson. And Theo sent me here a bio, but let me tell you a little bit how I think about Theo. Aside from having her PhD in uh, psychology, uh, she is an award-winning cognitive development psychologist and has been working in this field since 1995. And I'm very pleased to have Theo today because people who are listening today as professionals, as human resource uh, managers, as uh, executives, as coaches, we all want to do a good job and we're serious about what we do. And at the same time, there's so much happening in the world, so many things that we need to know and understand. And Theo is one of these people that I hold in very high esteem because she's a very serious person with a what I call a light touch. And she makes complex ideas accessible to people that want to be serious about their careers and delves into such uh, areas as adult uh, learning and development and cognitive psychology. Uh, she writes for Medium and other publications and, again, is just a delightful teacher. And I'm glad that we can have Theo on today to talk about uh, some things that are of particular interest to the audience. So, Theo, welcome. And what did I leave out? Gee, gosh, I think that's enough stroking for now. <laughs> was, that, was it a little heavy? <laughs> it's all true, Theo. <laughs> well, thank you so much. One never knows how to respond to okay. you know, that kind of a, a gush. Okay. Um, well, we'll put you to the test. We'll put you to the test and see if the, uh, if the praise was all uh, deserved. Put me to the test because okay. you have built up people's expectations. <laughs> now I feel that I must be an exceptional teacher. Yes. Well, you are, so no, no worries. The first thing I want to talk about is the people, again, that are listening uh, as managers, as uh, executives or uh, HR folks, um, working with clients uh, with uh, as they think about their career, as they think about their job, as they think about what's next. There's um, always plenty of assessments out in the marketplace that people can use. And the whole notion of assessments is kind of a broad area. And a lot of times it's uh, customer beware. So people are buying assessments, using assessments, and it might be the wrong assessment for the wrong purpose at the wrong time. So it's a kind of an open-ended question, but how should we think about using assessments and when and, and with whom? That's a nice, narrowly defined question that <laughs> <asked> there. <laughs> uh, I, well, I should, I should, in full disclosure, I did a minor in psychometrics in grad school. And I learned, I learned how to make assessments and not just assessments for doing research with, but assessments for, for evaluating the performances of individuals. So the standards for, for those is a little bit different than the standards for assessments for doing research with. And I guess, you know, there are many things to take into account when you're thinking about whether or not you want to use an assessment, whether it's even appropriate to consider an assessment in the process uh, that, that are pretty fundamental. Uh, the first one would, in my mind would be relevance. Is the problem or the issue that you have, is the thing that you want to gain or get to, is this assessment something that has relevance in helping you to move in the direction you'd like to, to move in would be a question. Um, and especially in terms of individual development. And if we stick with individual development, I think it's safer than trying to do this too broadly. Okay. Um, 
And then um, you have to think second, you know, what exactly is the person going to be getting out of this assessment? What what is the val- the actual value added? Is it a personality scale that's just going to be used to have me reflect internally on myself and hope that that's going to make a difference in my behavior? Is it a, a review of some kind that's looking at my performance and is going to tell me, you know, how well I'm doing, how well I'm not doing? Does the, the feedback that you get from the assessment do more than telling you about your current state? Does it does it provide you with the kind of information that you would need to be able to change the state if you wanted to change the state? Or is it just, well, that's my personality type, so I'm only really good for this kind of role or that kind of role. Um, this is my behavior. I need to actually just, you know, learn how to smile instead of frown when I'm in meetings. Does it go beyond that? Does it provide us with something that goes deeper and that actually can catalyze the kind of learning and development that we need to be able to keep up in the world today? And, you know, and, and I, I started making assessments not because I wanted to measure people's performances, but because I wanted to find a way to figure out exactly what it is that someone could benefit from learning next. And soon realized that if you wanted to do that, you couldn't just make up a survey. (laughs) You couldn't just do a PhD thesis, that you actually would have to make a deep, rich and thorough study of how people build knowledge and skills over time. And that would be a lifetime's work. It would be way more than building an assessment. It would be engaging in a lifetime of work that would eventually lead you to the ability to create an assessment that provides a really rich set of feedback so that people can put it to work in the real world. And boy, I got to tell you, when we started out, I knew how to make the assessment. (laughs) I knew how to make sure that, you know, they were reliable. I knew how to make sure that they were relevant. But what I didn't really know how to do at the beginning, and we've been working on developing skill around for many, many years, is take what we learned and give people something that was super useful and they could put to work right away in the world. Um, And of course, the kind of assessments we do got coupled with learning and how we think about learning and how learning works. Because if you really want to make a difference in people's lives, you've got to ensure they've got the tools that they need for themselves to be able to make the most of of the feedback that we're able to provide to them. So, you know, th- those are those are the, some some biggies. Like what what is the what is, what are you going to get out of this? And then what's behind what you're going to get out of it? Is it somebody's you know armchair <laughs> thoughts about what you ought to be thinking or doing? Or is it something that is, you know, has been studied deeply enough and with enough grunt work involved that you really have something, you know, that, that you can say is backed by by some evidence? Um, the and only, then the other. Oh, OK. Well, if, if we could. Um, so if we're going to talk about assessments, uh, I know that you've been an, an expert in the area of development. So I don't want to talk about assessments for the purposes of hiring and selection. Uh, we mm-hmm. could, but I want to narrow the focus and ask you this. Um, so I'm a manager uh, uh, or I'm an HR uh, professional inside a company, and we've got young uh, young people who are young in their career, uh, mm-hmm. and they've been there a couple of years, and they say they want to become a manager. Um, in, in this case, I uh, we know that they're clever. Um, and, and they're insightful. They've got high EQ. And I want to use the assessment, some kind of assessment to see, uh, not just for them. It's, this is not only for the, for their development, but for, for, to help, to help our own ability to make a good hire. Can what, what should we be looking for if we're trying to assess whether somebody can become a manager or not? Like, is this what your assessments are for or how should we think yes. about it? 
Yes. Well, a good assessment, a, a good assessment should be versatile as well. You should be able to use it in a variety of contexts. Um, a really well-built assessment that is reliable and valid and meets the reliability and validity requirements for that context of making decisions about individuals um, can be can be used in that in any assessment that's got those qualities can be used in that context. Now, unfortunately, we use a lot of assessments in that context that do not have the validity and reliability profiles they need, in particular in adult settings. When 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 it when we're talking about assessment for children and adolescents, there are more there's more regulation. But in the adult field, it's really the wild west, and um, and and reliability and validity profiles for assessments are often not good enough for that purpose. But yes, the assessments that we make are not only used to support learning, but they can be used to help you see whether or not the the level of skill or the com- we, we say the complexity level of the skills that a person has are commensurate with the task demands of the role. So we're not asking the question, is this person have the right personality for a management role? <laughs> we're, we're not asking, do they already have, well, we can ask to some extent, do they have some of the specific skills that they would need for this role? So we can assess whether or not they have some of those specific skills. But we're also, and I think even more important determining whether they have the mental capacity to be able to make that transition and to build those skills. Because anytime you move into a new position that requires new skills, what you need is capacity for building skills. We look at a number of different things to determine what capacity looks like for someone who's moving into a higher level role. We're looking at where they are now developmentally in terms of the fit to that role. we, We can analyze the role as well as analyzing the the performance of individuals with the same system. Um, so we can do that match. And and um, that's the first step in the process, of course, is just do they have the basic mental capacity for this role? Uh, and then we look at the assessments more deeply and we look at the specific VUCA skills that they have. We call leadership, a lot of leadership skills we put into a pool called VUCA skills that's composed of four components, collaborative capacity, Perspective coordination, contextual thinking, and and decision leader decision making skills, process skills. Um, so we can look at each one of those and see where they are right now. And then we can also look at something we call clarity, which is the the logical coherence and clarity with which they can express their ideas. And that also is predictive. Uh, if the higher the clarity score, the more likely a person is to continue growing. <laughs> over time. And it makes sense. We started out looking at clarity because we wanted to see whether people thought clearly enough to make good decisions, right? Because you know, you have to be able to think clearly to be able to make good decisions. That totally makes sense. But what we discovered through our research is that someone who has poor clarity skills is much less likely to keep growing over time than someone who has excellent clarity skills. So we can actually predict the trajectory of growth now based upon the combination of electrical score, the person's age and their clarity skills. We can see where it's likely that they're going to be able to go. We can also predict how much that slope is going to change if they learn how to build VUCA skills by learning a skill we call V-calling, which is the virtuous cycle of learning. Um, if building a skill called V-calling and using that skill to learn optimally from every moment, if they're operating with that skill, they also can increase the slope of their growth over time. So we not only can diagnose where they are right now, but we can 
we can tell you what that means for further development up to a point, and then we can help you to accelerate that development if you'd like to accelerate that development. So let's say you want to put someone on a fast track because they look like they're really talented. Um, one of the things you'd want to help them to develop would be um, VUCA skills. And in order for them to do that efficiently, you'd want them to learn how to do this skill called V-calling. Good. So, Theo, let me just summarize um, to make sure that uh, I'm uh, and the audience were on the same page. So when I asked the question about um, using an assessment, to help identify whether a young individual could become a manager, uh, what you're saying is it's not just, in your case, you're not just going to measure uh, extroversion versus introversion, sensor versus intuitive, the personality, and you're not just going to be looking at motivation. But what you're saying is, um, and I apologize if I'm making this too simple, uh, but what, go what goes on between people's ears? When I talk about that, though, to people, uh, sometimes I'll get a pushback and go, oh, well, we don't want to, we don't measure, I we're, we're not into IQ. And what I hear you saying is you're not talking about IQ here. You're talking about what happens between people's ears. You're calling that VUCA skills, their ability to collaborate, make good decisions, et cetera. Correct? Right. Right. And their capacity for continuing to build those skills over time. Because the, the, one of the things about skill is that a skill is not a fact. <laughs> a skill is not a procedure. A skill is your ability to take those facts and procedures and put them to work effectively in your environment, wherever, whatever that is. So I could name a skill. Let's just do a broad, a fairly broad skill like um, listening skills. And this is a skill that starts developing from birth pretty much. And continues to develop across the entire lifespan because the nature of what you're doing when you're listening changes as your environment changes, as your environment, what you can see in the environment, what you're expected to be able to see and coordinate in the environment. As that expands, that skill has to keep growing in order to be able to apply it in these increasingly complex contexts. So learning how to, to grow skills, learning learning the skill of growing skills is very, very important for leaders, especially in, you know, in our current context, because change is so rapid right now and complexification just wants to run wild. If we don't have the, 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 the basic skills and don't know how to learn to build upon those basic skills over time, then we're never going to become agile enough to be able to cope with the kind of complexity that we're, we're dealing with right now. And in our system, we start with what we call the collaborative capacity skills because they are very fundamental skills. These are skills, most of them, that you want to start your children out building. And we should be focusing on very heavily in the in education and we don't valorize at all. Uh, most of them are not, if they're taught, they're tacked on to a lesson plan rather, rather than being kind of the core of what it is we're learning. Yeah, the, um, could, let's take the time please to unpack the collaborative uh, skills because as you talk about VUCA, obviously there's four components, but for me, when I look at those collaborative capacity skills, those are so fundamental. And if I had to take just one out of the four, I'd, you know, that's where I would go because the world is getting so complex that unless we can, we have those skills, um, we're, we're, we're yeah. never going to be able to yeah. continue to be um, uh, uh, good in our role. So why don't you unpack those for us, please? Well, just before I do that, um, collaborative capacity skills are fundamental and absolutely essential. All of the other VUCA skills build on those skills. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. You know, they're, they're not, they're, they're fundamental because in order to do more complex things, in order to enact more complex skills in the real world, we have to be able to build off of those skills. 
So this is a starting place because, right. you know, it, it's a starting place. And yes, you're going to see everywhere that everybody needs these because we don't have them enough. Um, you know, on average, um, VUCA skills are way below where they really ought to be for people to be performing optimally. That's what we've learned in almost every organization that we've been in, with, with a few exceptions. So, you know, what I what you're going to want to do, I think, when you um, release this is maybe share either a link to the article in which we've, I've written about collaborative capacity. Uh, we're, we're in the process of writing a series of articles where we literally unpack in exquisite detail all of the skills, all of the all of the four VUCA skills that we target, um, collaborative capacity being the first one. So, um, and, and the way we know that these are the skills is because we have done something like 60,000 assessments now. Mm. And we study every assessment to learn everything that we can about what people are doing um, in this arena. And so we've been studying skill development and trying to figure out what the skills are since 1995. And, and these maps are the, the result of doing that. And the way we break down skills is we start out with a big scale like collaborative capacity. So this, we call that a mega skill. And then we say, okay, so what would be the kind of some logical categories that are just a little bit smaller than that big skill that we might want to create? And we call those um, macro skills. <laughs> so for collaborative capacity, the skills are perspective seeking, communication, self-regulation, perspective taking, and persuasion. These are fundamental skills. And then we unpack each of those into what we call mini skills. So the idea here is that we're getting smaller and smaller skills because we're trying to get down to skills that you can practice in real time in the moment. So we get down to, let's just take apart. You said one of the ones that you cared about was in particular was what? Um, uh, it was overall, it was the, uh, uh, the mega skill of uh, conceptual um, uh, uh, conceptual skill. So I didn't really uh, have a, an area. Oh, okay. You'd have a specific area. Right. Okay. So I'll take, I'll take us down into one that's um, uh, really popular. So listening skills are really important um, part of perspective seeking. Mm -hmm. And one of the skills under perspective seeking is build trust. This is a mini skill, build trust and establish rapport. And in that category are things, and the mini skills underneath that category are stay on topic, minimize interrupting and notice body language. Now, you'll notice that every one of those things, stay on topic, is something that you can do. You can practice that skill while you're talking or while you're writing. Minimizing interrupting is a skill you can practice while you're in a conversation with someone. Noticing body language is a skill that you can practice while you're in real conversations. And the best way to build skill because of the way our brain works is to build these little skills. And if you build the little skills, then the larger skill eventually becomes built. And the more of these small skills that you've built, the more complementary skills that you have so that you're building up a, a network in your brain by practicing them in real time, in the real world, with all of the emotion that goes with it, with the physical sensations that go with it, with the, um, with the interaction between two people that goes with it. Um, you're, you're networking these everything that you learn in context like that into your brain in a really robust way where that particular skill is connecting in multiple places because you're doing it in the real in real life in the real world and the more networked a skill becomes the more it becomes a skill like bicycle riding or walking it's there forever you can always find it you can always use it you can always get it you can always 
automatically you automatically begin to practice it even though you don't know you're doing it i was writing an article the other day about um about um contextual thinking skills and i and i realized that oh no about clarity skills and i realized as i was writing the article that i was using all the micro skills that were in the clarity skills map hmm. in order to just write this one article so if you think of this these micro skills that way there are these tiny little pieces components of larger skills now when you go and you take a course on collaborative capacity they could give you this map and they could teach you about this map and they could tell you these are the skills you will not build any skill by learning that <laughs> the only way you can build skill is to actually go out and practice these things in the real world and we have very specific ways of helping people to do that so i'm not i can't count all the micro skills in this map but there's probably at least 100 micro skills in this map I mean, I could count them if I wanted to, but I can't count them in real time now. It's not like a VUCA skill. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so there's about a hundred of these just in this one, this one single map. And what we do is we write these little things called micro V calls for each of the skills. So when people are first learning how to do this, we can give them a, a leg up. We can help them to 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 learn how to do this optimally. After a while, people learn that skill, and then they can take these maps and go and figure out how to practice them on their own. By covering this kind of micro skill universe, what you're doing is, I mean, we're literally thinking about the brain. We're thinking about networking this, these skills and knowledge into the brain. And through the practice of skill, what's skill operating on? It's operating on knowledge. <laughs> so skills operating on knowledge. So this is also the best way to learn the knowledge that you're trying to learn at that time by, by putting it to work and networking it into the brain through skills. And then that make, that cements knowledge and makes knowledge stronger and more powerful and also allows you the opportunity to um, shape that knowledge consciously so that you're building what we often call a robust intuition hmm. so that your brain is so well wired that when you have to make that instant decision in the moment, on the fly, you can trust your brain <laughs> that it's going to default to something that's more robust and, and, and a better approximation to reality and what it might have been otherwise. Theo, I'm so glad we're talking about this because this was the main topic I wanted to talk to you about was about learning because as a coach, um, I think I've made when – I, when I read your, when I read your uh, work on this, and I'm glad we're having this conversation, I have to honestly say as a coach, I think I was giving people chunks that were too big. Like, well, just, you know, here's listening and, you know, read these three pages about listening tips and just do it. And not, mm -hmm. I think that was really not, not, not good coaching. Um, and I was just kind of expecting people. I'm not sure what I was expecting, but it's, it's not part of our repertoire to be able to break, break these things down into micro skills and then have people practice them. Well, it, it took a lot of years to figure this out. So you shouldn't, you know, kick yourself too far around the block. Okay. Just, just halfway around. <laughs> it took a long time to, you know, someone was criticizing these for being taxonomies the other day. And I said, they're useful tools. <laughs> you know? So let's not criticize taxonomies. They're useful tools and they're not being used in a rigid way. We are not trying to turn everybody. We're expressly trying to help people to become their own unique selves, their own unique thinkers. We're not telling you exactly how to do any of this stuff. Right. We're telling you, use this skill to, you know, use this learning skill to build this network of skills. And then you'll have this thing that you, that's only yours that, that you can work with that, that, that has, um, that's connected your knowledge, that's connected, you know, all, all that whole body of things that, that is you and your brain and your way of knowing and your talents and skills and 
personality. So, so we're we're using a taxonomy in order to help to create a better brain, a better system in the brain that will serve you better for for the over the course of your lifespan. Yeah, that's clear. But, but I think you're saying more than um, just break this down into smaller pieces. What I'd like you to talk about is if you're willing to share the secret sauce is once you've got this uh, these micro skills identified. Okay. Yeah. Um, then you mentioned, if you could explain maybe to the audience, how do you take these micro skills and quote use vcol to build them okay. or develop them? Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, I think what I'm going to do is use a vcol that we released to the public at the beginning of the COVID nineteen crisis hmm. as part of a of a set of vcols that we called good in a crisis recalls. It's a really easy recall to do, and it deals with a problem that can come up uh, quite frequently in situations where you're homebound with a spouse or a child, and there's no escape, and you find yourselves getting into conflict more often than usual. And it's called avoiding the blame game. And this is a a recall that's got more than one part, so I'm just going to discuss part one with you. I think we all know what the blame game looks like. It's it's when two people get into a conflict and they're trying to point the finger of blame at one another, and not, you don't go anywhere except into a spiraling emotional you know, battle. So this involves understanding what it means to be playing the blame game. So we talk about, uh, you know, there's blaming that's really obvious. You did this to me. And then there's sneaky blaming. Uh, without naming names, I feel the need to say that I haven't felt the kind of leadership I really need in this situation. <laughs> <laughs> Blaming in secret? I'm not going to say anything, but it's obvious that John dropped the ball here. <laughs> so we're going after all of those kinds of, of blaming. I, rec um, I recognize them well. Keep going. Yeah. And, you know, there are risks associated with not playing the blame game, especially when everybody else is playing it. Sometimes the only way to kind of stay afloat is to play the game along with everyone else. So we don't recommend that you use this, you know, at, at your peril. But um, but it's but I think there are many opportunities where we can practice this technique that I'm about to show you, and it's going to have benefits because it's going to defuse the situation and 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 open up a real kind of communication rather than simply blame. So we're going to set the goal of building a set of techniques for avoiding the blame game simple. So the next step is to seek. And in the seek step of this recall, we ask people to just take a few minutes to think about the way in which they and other people in their environment play the game. So what do I remember about how this game plays out in my environment? And while you're doing that, just step back and ask yourself, once you have um, done this activity of just observing what you remember about the blame game in your environment, then you're going to do an application step which is the third step of a V-call. And for the next few weeks and months, each time you feel the impulse to place blame for an outcome. So anytime you just feel like, oh, I want to blame somebody for this, even if it's yourself, take a moment to just step back and ask yourself, is blaming someone for this going to fix anything? It's just a simple question. So you're not actually engaging in any kind of deep judgment or exploration or rumination here. You're just asking yourself a simple question. And if the answer is no, which is almost always the case, then try to um, keep your reaction to yourself. Just try, 
okay, I'm just going to keep this reaction to myself. I don't have to let other people know that I have this impulse to blame. And then shift your focus to gathering the information you need to help prevent this kind of outcome in the future. So let's say something goes wrong. Your impulse is to blame somebody. You, you stop. You say, ah, okay, I'm not going to do that right now. I'm just going to keep it to myself. And I'm going to focus on what, 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 what kind of things could we do to keep this bad event from happening again? So you're shifting the focus from the other person to the situation itself. You've still got the same energy going on, but you're shifting the focus of that energy. And just try to do that every single time. It's important that you're not getting into a judgy place if you don't get this right. right. <laughs> because the purpose of practicing skills is that you're actually have this state of mind where you're thinking, when it comes to skills, I never have it quite right because there's always room to grow a skill. Right. So you just have to accept you're not going to get it perfect. And the next time you do it, you're going to see something you didn't see this time. And it's always going to be a growing process. So after you've done that for about a week, then take a, no, actually do it every time. Every time you do it, when you can do it, take a moment to let a corner of your mind observe the process as it's unfolding and and just present these questions to yourself. And you can also do this as a wrap up at the, at the end of the day, if it's easier to do it then. Um, ask yourself, did I catch myself? If not, why? What happened? It kept me from catching it. Was I completely successful in keeping a reaction to myself? And why or why not? And how successfully am I shifting my focus? And why or why not? So you're asking yourself these questions that are designed to help you do it better next time. And that's the only purpose of asking them. And in the moment when you're doing the practicing the skill in that particular moment, you may not be able to have time to do all of those reflections. And you don't want to spend a lot of time on it. And that's why we suggest that if you can't do them in real time, that you at least sit down at the end of the day and think about what happened during that particular day. And a really good idea with any micro recall that you're doing is having someone you can discuss the experience with um, because it always really helps to get another person's perspective on the observations that you've made. And sometimes they'll have ideas that you can use to, to build a skill. And as you go along each day, you might want to think about, okay, what based upon all these reflections I'm doing, where would I like to set the bar for tomorrow? Like what would be the things I'm going to really try to really nail tomorrow? And that's your basic um, microvehicle. Great. And you want to just remind us of the steps. That's a great example. So would you just remind us of outlining the steps again, Theo? Yes. So the vehicle steps are set, seek, apply, reflect, and then set. So you start the cycle again right. with a reset after the reflection. And we're just mimicking, as I said before, we're just mimicking the natural cycle of learning or taking you back to what it was like when you were learning to walk as a child, except we've added in all this conscious reflection. You mentioned self-observation. <laughs> all right. I think that was your word. And, um, and reflection. So is, is the ability to observe yourself one of those fundamental uh, skills you're going to need to develop uh, conceptual um, capacity skills? Is that going to be a, a cornerstone? Yes, you do want to be in the driver's seat. And, you know, there is a kind of dark side to this for some people, because some people do this thing called ruminating. They have an active observer that's tearing them apart all the time. Uh. So we're not talking about an active observer that does that. We're talking about an active observer that 
is is disciplined to perform the function that you're asking it to function to, to perform and only that function and that's why we start out with you are observing you are not making judgments people build the skill of observing without making judgments um if you are not participating consciously in the learning process you are not in control of your brain hmm. and you're not in control of how your brain networks knowledge. You're not in control of you know, what, what that intuitive brain that we all need as we move into you know, more complex and more sophisticated roles. You're not controlling how that develops. So the active observer is a key part of that. And also the reflection is huge. Yeah, that's the part I think I've left out, Theo. Honestly, I've, I've tried to build people's capacity to be a better observer of themselves without the judgment. But I don't think I've really focused in on uh, taking the time to reflect and make sense of that. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, about the reflection piece? Yeah. Yeah. Let me just first say something about the active observer. The active observer does make judgments at times, but they're not judgments of you and your personhood. They could be judgments of how well you exercise that skill exactly. in that moment. Right. Right. So, and but it's, it's not a judgment that you, you're going to load with emotion. You're going to learn how to make that judgment dispassionately. Right. Right. Okay. So you we're moving on to reflection. Yes. Okay. So reflection. Oh my gosh. Well, this is another key characteristic of several um, learning theories from the 20th century. Piaget called this reflecting abstraction or reflective abstraction. And he saw it as an automatic process that your brain does. So if you think about you're learning how to walk, Every time you make a new try, you get instant information from your environment on how you did. That information tells your brain what to do next. You know, it gives your brain ideas about what to mm -hmm. try next. Um, in, so when you're, when you're first learning, you're learning, you're not conscious of the reflection aspect. The, the, the physical world, the world of a young child is unsophisticated enough so that the default settings of our unconscious brain can handle the task. So when little kids are learning, we don't have to help them learn to walk, man. They're driven to learn to walk. They're going to learn to walk. Their brain is perfectly wired to help them do that by themselves. Same with learning to talk, unless there's some kind of problem that the child has. But as we get older and the environment becomes an abstract environment, it's not just that physical environment anymore, but it's an environment of ideas and you know more refined kinds of skills that involve complex ideas being added to them you know like if you're going to put together an electronic circuit it's 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 sensory motor but it's also uh, an activity that requires a lot of networked knowledge to be able to, to enact a skill um when, when you when we become abstract thinkers the default settings in our brain don't work so well for us anymore a whole bunch of them kind of get things wrong cause us to make immediate judgments that we really wouldn't make if we stopped to think about it um, and want to make connections in certain ways in our brain because the default settings, you know, just automatically use those kinds, make those kinds of connections. When you are, when you learn to micro V call consciously, which is something that probably should happen by around age, you know, seven, eight in really minimal kind of way, maybe even a little bit earlier for some kids. Wow. Um, when you learn to micro call consciously, then you are using your executive brain to help your fast brain get connected upright. Mm. So if let's just say that um, at the same time that I put my hand to my face, there was an explosion outside. System one would connect those two things in my brain. And sometimes those kinds of connections get made and they cause really serious problems for us, right? That's an extreme kind of example, right? But but 
every second of every day, every single thing we do, that that's happened, that those kinds of connections are being made. If we take our executive brain, system two, and system two is just kind of monitoring things as we go along and saying, oh, no, you know what? I don't like the way I reacted to that. Let's try another reaction next time. Okay, go on on that. <laughs> like, or, or, oh, yeah, look at the way he's looking at me. Hmm, I wonder if the tone of voice that I'm using is maybe having an impact. I think I'll try something else. These, these are things that are going on at, at the micro level um, in our brains all the time. When we're conscious of them, we get to choose. When we're not conscious of them, we don't get to choose. And the more we're making those choices throughout our learning lives, the more robust our brains are going to be going to become. And there's so much research coming out now from the group of people who, who are studying what they call the connectome, the brain that's, you know, how our brain is actually all the parts of our brain connect to one another. <laughs> and the more interconnections there are as a consequence of learning in the real world. <laughs> Uh, the more, the more uh, my understanding of physics is associated with my emotions, the better my brain is. The more better it solves problems, the faster it can solve problems. The better I'm likely to think. Um, so we're, so we are um, engaging in the process of consciously creating that network and making it the network we want it to be and gradually becoming more of the person that we want to be. Uh, you know, some things are really, really hard to work on. You may have noticed that, that there's some aspects of who you are that no matter how many times people, you know, tell you, no, that's not, you know, that's a real problem. Um, but an, an example from my life is um, judgment. I, I grew up in a military family. I learned to judge people and it was just built in so strong. I decided to start working on it in my 20s. And it took until my 40s before I woke up one day and realized that I hadn't made an instant judgment. <laughs> and I hadn't even wanted to go there. Laying down new pathways can take a long time and do you know quite a lot of work. But because I had learned to do it as part of a micro V-calling process, it became an unconscious habit of mine to be questioning myself in those situations. And that's how I eventually got to lay down a pathway that was stronger than the one that my parents built in me. Hmm. As you talk about reflection, Theo, I think when I bring it up to people, they think that it's got they've got to uh, write the next you know a ten page essay. And yeah. it's it's really not that. So, um, any uh, any words of encouragement or any suggestions to to, to urge people toward this reflective capacity? Uh, well, I would use evidence. I think here, and that that is that um, you're going to get more bang for your buck. That's good. If you don't do that. You're going to get way more bang for your buck if you, instead of taking a course, break all the skills down and start practicing the, the tiny little skills uh, um, one at a time. Most of when we learn through conventional roots, um, there's nothing wrong with journaling per se, but when we learn through roots like that, it's less efficient and slower than when we are engaged in that practice as part of our just natural way of being in the world all the time on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but again, you know, in order to be able to do this in a way that's healthy, you really need to be in charge of your active observer, observer and what it's allowed to do and what's expected to do. Um, Theo, we've talked about this before. You've talked about this before with me. Um, this is all assuming that people have a certain willingness to engage, to learn, to take on, uh, that they're willing to say, hey, you know what? I'm not very good at this. 
But as you've talked about before, there's a lot of hesitancy for people to raise their hand and say, no, I'm not very good at this or I don't understand it. There's a sense of shame or embarrassment. Or Do you want to talk a little bit about, about that, about the way we should approach learning and how to encourage yeah. people? Well, as, you know, I told you before, when we first started out, we learned how to make assessments. We made really good assessments and immediately found out that being assessed and getting a score was not making people happy. It was making them scared. It was making them nervous. It was making them fearful. It was making them feel bad about themselves. It was eliciting feelings of shame um, on one end. On the other end, it was an ego stroke that made you able to go out and brag to everybody else about how high you were. And <laughs> yeah. Right. Talk about unintended consequences, uh, right? Unintended consequences. Exactly. And you know, this has to do, this, all this is down to our educational system and the way our educational system works, especially today. You know, we're rewarded when we get it right and we're punished when we get it wrong. And those are the only two states, right and wrong. <laughs> and you're going to be punished for one and rewarded for the other. And ironically, what happens is that people who don't do well in school just take on a dismissive attitude about the whole school enterprise and just that protect themselves by saying, I don't want to even bother learning because this is stupid. Um, people who are successful at playing this game are the ones who often feel extreme shame when they don't understand something or when they don't get it right because their whole sense of themselves <laughs> is I am a person who is who gets it right. I am a person who gets this reward. Um, it's so connected to the reward, um, that external kind of reward. So when we're teaching people, one of the reasons we went to micro V calls was because when we tried to help people learn big things, they came, they were running into big, mis big, the big not understandings. And we found that the bigger the not understanding where it was, we, we, that, you know, big not understandings elicit, yeah, well, I'm not the kind of person who can do that. You know, I'm a math folk. I'm, I'm not the kind of person who could learn to do that. Um, and that's in defensive, you know, like that's, that's a kind of defensive posture that it's completely legitimate. You know, it's, you know, we don't, I'm not blaming the people who are out there for this. We, we, we create the situation. Um, I homeschooled my kids so they didn't become like that so that they wouldn't become like that. I wanted them to keep that passion for learning that babies have. And it turns out that when you, uh, you know, when you grow people up in an environment where you don't take away the natural learning, uh, you don't, you don't remove people from their natural learning system in the brain. Um, they keep, they keep the same passion for learning that babies have. It doesn't go away. And it's easy to teach them how to micro recall. They already know how to do it. They just don't know the conscious part. Usually you just have to twig them into the conscious part. But for people who have been, you know, have had to have this kind of shame based relationship and who whose idea about what learning is, is about learning how to get something right. They they're, they've got a lot of other things that they're bringing along with that. Aside from those emotions, they're also bringing with them a lack of the ability to understand or to, to be able to sense into when they're really understanding something and when they're not, because when you're being rewarded for getting it right, that's not the same as getting rewarded for understanding something. Mm. So you know, if you're constantly just being reinforced for getting something right and you're not being given the opportunity to get deep enough to get to understanding, you don't have that feeling, then you're not getting that the boost of that. And I don't, you know, when I haven't understood something and I understand it, I jump up and down. It's a cool feeling. I love that feeling. It's so it's so good. And if, it, if I'm in, the longer I've been struggling with it, the more I jump up and down. Absolutely. <laughs> I get very excited. So there's a 
our brains are built for us to know. Like the kid knows I succeeded that time. I don't have to fix anything. Now I can go on to the next thing. Right. You know, they're under running right away after they're walking. They don't even pause. Like it's just, I'm going. Um, when adults have lost all of that, that means that they are disconnected from their brain's natural learning system, and they're carrying a lot of baggage. So one of the reasons we created micro recalling is because it reduces the size of the error down to such a tiny size <laughs> that that it, we can get people to do that, even if they would be afraid to do something at a, at a more complex level. And we can, if we can get them to do that long enough to learn to micro recall, then they're their learning system will kick in and they'll start to get that dopamine opioid thing going in their brain and they'll start to get an internal intrinsic reward back again for learning and we've seen in people who that was turned off in like that's a magical moment when they realize oh my god (laughs) i'm connected to this new thing and now my world doesn't look the same anymore at all because i'm reconnected with my natural connection to the dopamine opioid cycle, I don't have to get it through drugs and alcohol anymore. I can get it just from, you know, learning, <laughs> which is what it was built for. Right. Theo, I, one of the last topics I want to talk to you about was, uh, I don't know if there's a segue here, um, but that's the notion of um, what we call high potentials. And, you know, we love to use that term. And as you're talking, I'm just wondering if we have created a category that we call high potentials for the few people who like to learn, uh, but, but we've discarded a lot of other people who can learn and that are quite capable, uh, but we've dismissed them because they don't fit into this category. Um, well, yeah, I, it's a kind of complex story there because it's often the people who, who we see as high potentials are people who could win on Jeopardy. <laughs> Bravo, yeah. Which doesn't provide you with much life skill. So this is this is one of the problems with using IQ. It's it's yes, we need some measure of intelligence. We need some kind of measure of mental capability to really optimally construct our teams and you know get our organizations working really well. But when you use IQ, you're actually hiring someone who's good in jeopardy, um, and and that whole other set of kinds of skills that someone might bring, um, you're not measuring those at all. So. And then we end up, you know, kind of using proxies like personality and stuff like that in order to, to get at those. Um, so there's a kind of downside of, of, of doing that kind of at that you know, conventional kind of measurement. Um, what was the original question? Well, but, you know, what is it? Is the notion of, uh, of a high potential a useful one? Huh. And are we okay. mistakenly just calling hypos people who, like you said, are good at Jeopardy? Yeah. Yeah. But really what we're looking for is people who are good at what we call the, the, um, uh, the VUCA skills. And that would right, be- exactly. Well, go ahead. I think it's both. I mean, I think it's a combination of things. If you're looking, if by high potential, you mean people who you could fast track. Yes. You know, people who you can groom for, you know, positions you know are going to be open 10 years from now. And we want to find people who are likely to be able to hit that goal. Then a combination of VUCA skills and the complexity level of their current thinking are both kind of important for being able to figure that out because we're going to be looking at, okay, when do we think the complexity of their thinking is going to be at the complexity of that role? And then um, are there VUCA skills and their clarity skills? I'd like to add that in there. Are the VUCA skills and clarity skills good enough to make it possible for them to hit that goal for, for to, to support the growth that needs to take place um, of, in those skills before they get to that? point in their development. Now, 
So that's only a partial answer, though, because you're also correct that there are people in an organization who whose growth has stalled because the educational system is just it says decoupled them from their, you know, from their natural um, their natural ability to learn from the moment. And for those folks, it's always hard to say which one of those you're going to have that breakthrough. But I think it's worth it for any organization to test that the hypothesis that, hey, if we, you know, if these folks learn how to can can learn how to learn in this way, if they can learn how to really start taking the juice out of every moment of their lives in order to be able to build their, their knowledge and skills, um, can we identify who the people are who we can take there? And it, once you can get people there, then you're going to see different growth trajectories for those people once you've got them there. But, you know, all organizations also need people who are likely to be happy where they are for a long time, too. So right. you might want to use this tool to identify people who are likely to remain happy here and really be happy here for, for a long time. And, and so I think all of those, you want to be able to answer all of those questions or have some kind of contribution to answering all of those questions. I think, and, the, and the last question going back to vehicle here is, is this um, and related to um, uh, shame-based learning or, or, or not having, not, not feeling embarrassed, you know, as, as a coach and as a, as a you know, facilitator, we all want to think that what we say in front of the room is so darn important or that we have great insight and well, maybe. But what I'm finding is the less I say and the more I put people together in small groups to learn, it's better. So I'm wondering that here's the question. It seems that vehicle is um, uh, it's, it's uh, real enough. It's easy enough to get people to kind of peer coach each other that they can support one another in small group settings, even over Zoom, where they could quickly inquire with one another and aren't looking for some facilitator to give them supposedly uh, a big yeah. insight. You yeah. Come, come. yeah. And, uh, we started teaching a course called VIP. It's, it's be call in practice. It's a six week course where we just teach people how to be call, micro be call. That's all we teach, just micro be calling. And it's mostly a practice based course. We give them a little bit of readings and then we give them a lot of micro v calling to do. And then we get together, you know, as a group to talk about our experience. And, you know, if, if they're all working in the same organization, there's a lot of water cooler stuff going on. And, but once people get to the point where they're micro v calling fairly fluidly, then, you know, then they, they instant, they automatically just want to go out and, and, and share the skill. And so we've started a process. We have this little Ponzi scheme going. Seriously, a nonprofit with a Ponzi scheme, right? So you got to ask, how is this going to be done? So our little Ponzi scheme is we say to people, look, would you like to learn how to teach this course? Hmm. And if they want to learn to teach this course, they can come back to the course twice to help facilitate it. And then they have to teach it once here. And then we just say, okay, now you can go teach this course out in the world. The only catch is you have to teach two more people how to teach this course. Ah. And we give them all the materials and the readings and everything that they need because our Ponzi scheme is to actually help the whole world learn to relearn how to learn because we think the world needs this skill. What a great Ponzi scheme, teaching the world how to learn. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know that book, I know you've studied about uh, Robert Keegan and others, uh, but when, you know, when Keegan wrote that book, The Development, The Deliberately Developmental Organization, I think people can read that. And even if they don't read the whole thing, they get a sense that, oh, the whole company is going to develop. But that's a, but to, to really implement that is really can be a daunting task. I can really see that this would be a way of um, building from the bottom up a 
uh, a developmental culture, teaching people to micro vehicle. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, have to have the, it both works from both ends. Yeah. Uh, and sideways it's as not, well. Not, but but, I, but I, yes, I think that if people don't have the skills to be able to learn optimally, it doesn't matter what you do, you're only going to be able to get so far as an organization. And, and if everybody's doing it together, imagine, I mean, that just multiplies the benefits across. And of course, within organizations, we'd like to see several people within organizations who know how to teach this skill because part of the onboarding process then has to become like, it's an initiation into our culture. Right. We all micro vehicle. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. And and if you and, and micro v calling, the other characteristic of micro v calling that I think is important and it plays well into what's going on in the business world today, is that many of the structures that we're putting in place in organizations are iterative, and micro v calling is iterative. And once people, even people who don't really understand iteration or why you'd want to iterate or whether that's what it's all about, once they start micro v calling and they start to reap the benefits of micro v calling, you can actually use micro v calling as as leverage to help people understand the value of other types of iterative cycles like you know, Scrum and Agile and um, decision-making processes that require iteration and, and that sort of thing. So in our organization, we say nothing, everything, everything. Our research methodology, um, the way the research methodologies work, every, everything. Um, the way that we make decisions. <laughs> and I think that's the world we're in. It's not easy to become that kind of organization. But if you can get everybody into a mindset where they've got a kind of gut level understanding of why that might work, mm. you know, because what we're doing is like we're tweaking this one little skill right now. We're not trying to change the world, but we're changing. We're cha you're changing your brain significantly. Yeah, and I'm just thinking, too, about the organization where I spent some time and that you know are, are very aware of. And the idea of peers sharing this with one another and creating that sense that this is a, an iterative process. We're all in this together. We're all learning together, rewiring together is uh, makes a lot of sense and very doable. It's not a big bite of the apple. It's not like a, a huge you know, transformational change coming from the top. And I'm not saying that those can't happen, but something that right. is uh, a little bit more accessible and bite-sized is very important. Yeah. So we, we call this a, a kind of an inside out approach. You know, there's a lot of approaches that are more outside in. I, I really don't like those categories because, of course, it goes both ways. It always does. It has to. But I really believe that if you want people's behavior to change, that they have to really get it. And they, it, you know, they really need to understand the thinking behind the change. They need to understand why that's important and what the benefits of that are going to be. And not at a surface level, but at a gut level. Um, so I think that when you equip people with the, with the ability to learn more efficiently, you're bringing them to a place, you know, you're, you're bring, giving them a skill that they're going to be able to learn, to use to learn to understand how other people are thinking, um, you know, some of the some of the things that they don't understand quite yet. You're giving them a tool to help them move toward a better understanding of those things. You're giving them a tool that's going to help them see when they don't understand, which, you know, I, we see this all the time. People think they understand. Their boss thinks they understand. And what the boss is talking about and what the person that we're evaluating is talking about are two completely different things. They're constructed differently. They lead to different conclusions. So with, with this kind of process, you're, you're helping the human become more available for 
understanding. And when they understand why, you know, a person who a person who waits for the light to change before they cross the street because they're going to get arrested is fundamentally different from a person who stands at the light <laughs> until it turns green because they want to keep the world a safer place. And, and in my town, I get the, you know, in my town, <laughs> I live in a nice town where everybody's really nice. And in my town, I've almost been run over several times by people who, who stop on the green light in order to let me go when it's not my turn. Hmm. So that's how differently people can understand exactly the same thing. You know, they're, 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 the niceness is boring with a lack of understanding <laughs> of a rule, right? right. So rather than be, having people be rule governed, let's give them the skills that they need to understand what's going on and be able to construct the rationale. Because if you can construct the rationale and you understand you're making the world a safer place <laughs> and you care about the world, you have to you have the caring piece too, um, then, you're, then that's going to be somebody that more consistently behaves in the ways that you would like to be able to just be able to tell them to behave. <laughs> Theo, I don't want to let it go unsaid that also the town where you live has some of the best bakeries in the country. And, Indeed. Uh, yeah, Indeed. So I, that town shall remain nameless, but that's quite important. <laughs> too. We're talking about serious matters. Theo, any, any other final words or, or comments, uh, your thoughts about learning and topics that we've covered today? Well, I suppose in, in my own self-interest, um, I should plug the blog posts. The, we, I, as, uh, as, as you mentioned, I'm, I have a Medium blog. And I'm basically using the Medium blog as the place where I'm working out all the bits and pieces for a book. Mm. So, so I always say my book is in the blog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and in order to find it, you can just search for Theo Dawson on Medium. They've, they've actually made it easy to find us. Finally, it was a little bit difficult for a while there. Um, and you'll find lots of information in the blog that is designed to support people in becoming more effective and efficient learners. And since that's our main goal, I invite you to 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 go there you people also can go to the lectica live site which has a lot of additional information and also includes all of the the, the uh, academic articles and publications and reliability reliability and validity information um, that we've published um, and it'll love, give you a chance to go you know deeper than you can get in the in the medium post if you're interested i also teach some courses and you can just check on the site for the courses we teach and mostly, I just want to thank you, Michael, for inviting me to do this. Thank you so much. Theo, I really want to thank you. You, uh, you lived up to my expectations, and you kept the promise of, uh, of providing insight with a, with a light touch. I, you know, when we talk, we don't talk enough, but I always learn from you and challenges my thinking, and I really appreciate that. Um, so uh, it's, uh, I, don't want the, I don't want that to go unsaid, that I appreciate you as a teacher to me. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to sure. – chat with your listeners. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Theo.